0: They expected to find a corpse that Sunday morning, those three women. They expected to give it a proper Jewish burial. We should be careful not to paint a romanticized picture of what's happening at this moment. There is not Vivaldi music playing in the background. They don't have bouncy sleeved blouses. They're not whispering and giggling on the way to the tomb. They're engaged in risky business. Because Jesus has been convicted of a capital offense. He's now dead. He's the property of the Roman government. If they're caught, the same could happen to them. It is a calling these Jewish women have. There are leagues of these women who sneak out and restore dignity by giving a proper burial with spices and garments. They expect to find a corpse. Matthew chapter 16, that's the gospel we'll read from this morning as we listen to the story of these women. I invite you to watch the movement, the movements in the passage, and watch the scenes. There are freeze frames as Mark just moves right along in true Mark and fashion. Watch what he does and how few words it takes to do it. Mark chapter 16 beginning with verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought, brought spices so they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the, tomb away, the, the, tomb, the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that is the end in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes we read Mark and we want just a little bit more. Can you really end the resurrection story with paralyzed people? Can it be over that quick? About a hundred years later, scribes and scholars said no, and that's why you have those additional verses in the end of the Gospel of Mark, verses nine through 20. And there are a couple of other endings floating around that didn't make it into our Bible. But for a moment today, what if we just paused there at verse eight? They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And we stay right there with Mark. What does that mean? Now, remember, Mark's in charge of his story, the details he puts in, the details he leaves out, and he leaves out an awful lot. But what would we learn from Mark if we just allowed the story to end with these paralyzed people? Here's the things that I see. It's three women who go to the tomb. Now, it's not a problem for women to do a proper burial, to anoint with spices, to wrap with linen. That's okay, but they certainly can't be legal witnesses to anything according to Jewish law. So in other words, if there was something spectacular that was going to happen in the tomb, these women couldn't be trustworthy. They, women can't witness anything in Palestine. They're not a legal witness. Except for childbirth, I've decided. You could witness childbirth if you're a woman, but She really can't witness anything else. So what are you going to do with three women going to the tomb if something interesting, exciting were to happen? And they go on a Sunday morning most all times this story is told, it said in th- on the third day they went. That's because the Jews understood it t- t- takes three days to know that the body is really dead. If you were to go to the tomb on the first or the second day, you might not be dead yet. Some of you know the Lazarus story where Jesus goes to visit Lazarus. He gets to Lazarus on what day? Day four. We know Lazarus is really, really, really dead with that little detail in the story. These women are going on the third day. They should find a dead body. So far, Mark tells us uh, you could expect a predictable ending here. Well, then we find this little detail. They wonder who's going to roll the stone away. The women have got their their garments, their spices. They're on their way, and they look at each other and say, hmm, who's going to take care of the stone? You would think they might have thought of that before they left. Or take a guy with you. Take a couple of men with you. Who's going to roll away the stone? Three women on the way where there would definitely be a dead body. How are they supposed to get in now? And as soon as they ask the question, look at verse 4. The text tells us it's a very large stone. It's not just a little task. It's a large task that they have in front of them. And it's as if Mark is stacking the deck with all these details against the possibility of anything surprising to happen. Almost stacking the deck against God. It's predictable how this should come out with these details. And we sort of like things that are predictable, don't you? Don't you sort of like to know how things are going to go? Don't you like to know how they'll fall into place? And if we could fast forward to the end, wouldn't you want to know? I, I would. Predictable, planable, executable lives. When we traveled about a year ago together as a family, Kirby was on business, and the girls and I joined him. For as much as I complain about the elite status of frequent flyers, and I have done that in the last few weeks, I've said that elite flyers are anti-gospel people (laughs) because they stand in a privileged line, and I've said a lot more, but I'll stop. You get a free ticket every now and then, and the whole family got to go with them to Australia last year, which was beautiful. The girls and I are walking on the ocean side there, right up against the Tasman Sea, and we look out at a sea more beautiful than I've ever seen, and we notice there's a a rock that sort of hangs out over the edge, and the the girls decided this is a perfect place for a picture. We stand out on the edge, Mom, and you stand back here, and, and if you time it just right, the water just kind of swishes up behind this rock, provides this natural, beautiful backdrop scenery for the photograph. So we did. They stood there, I stood back here, and I took a shot, and, well, we didn't quite get the water splashing up the way we wanted, so we took another shot. And the water didn't come up at all that time, and we got to laughing about this because it was going to be a beautiful picture if the water would just cooperate, and so I snapped another one. For 30 minutes, I took pictures, Waiting on the ocean. <laughs> it's really a rather spectacular. Watch, but look at those faces, would you? Look at those faces who have just realized that you cannot tell how the ocean how to behave for a picture that you cannot domesticate nature to get it to cooperate, can you? Look at those faces. They tell you how limited humans are. And this is exactly what happens next in the tomb with the three women. These kind of faces. Read ahead with me, would you? From verse 4, if we keep moving on, where it says, The women looked up. In our Bibles, it makes you think they just glanced, but it's the same word we've been reading all along, those of us who've been here the last six weeks. The blind men, two blind men, and other disciples, they, they had their vision restored. They could see again. Finally, they could see. That's the word that's used here. The women looked up. The women had their eyes restored, their eyesight restored. The women could see again, and when they recovered their sight, they noticed what? The stone had been rolled away. Who, who rolled it away? Mark doesn't tell us. It had been rolled away, just like we read, Scripture has been written. We don't, it doesn't tell us who did these things. And they see a man sitting in, inside the tomb, one unnamed man sitting to the right-hand side. And some of you will remember back, who has just fought about being at the right-hand side of Jesus? Those two disciples. And here is a man sitting on the right-hand side of the tomb, clothed in a white garment. That's martyr's robe. Who is this guy? We don't know. Is he the gentleman from chapter 14? Just a chapter or two back in Gethsemane, when Jesus is convicted of this this crime, there is one unnamed disciple who, who runs away, who flees, leaving his linen garment behind, and he runs away naked, the gospel says. Is that this guy? We don't know. Here he sits in the tomb. He's in a position of honor somehow, and the women come in with their ocean expression faces. They see this man, and the Bible tells you that, that they're alarmed and that they're terrified. And the man said, he's, he's not risen, he's risen. He's not here. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's gone ahead to Galilee. And, and these women are trembling, your text says, and bewildered. Bewildered is a great word. Bewildered is they're out of their normal mind with amazement. Something has taken them out of their normal mind. And the Bible says the women ran away. They really were afraid. They were full of fear. By the time you get down to verse 8 and 9, they flee. And we realize we can't even plan the ending of a story about God, a God who we think perhaps is predictable. You can't plan the sovereignty of God You can't fix it. It will unfold the way it wants to. All we have here is to read, well, what happened to them as it begins to unfold? And sometimes we become critical right here of how these disciples and these people chose to respond to what was unfolding before their eyes. And I've been critical of the disciples the last few weeks. I think a more important task this morning, rather than to ask, well, why did they flee, is to ask ourselves, well, what would you do? What would I do? you're in the tomb, you've become out of your mind with amazement, what would your response be? How would it be any different than anybody else's? We cannot plan the surprise. I wonder is, is part of the challenge when we get to Easter weekend and Resurrection Sabbath that we're not surprised anymore by the good news of the cross and the tomb. It really doesn't take us off guard like it used to. We, we, it's an old story. We know well. And really, at the end of the day, I still have to go to work on Monday and you still have to feed your kids and drive them around and take your medicine. medicine. and Is it that we're not surprised by the Easter story any longer? In the 16th and 17th century, there was a real shock when they learned that all the, the planets orbit around the sun. Some of you know that part of history very well. That was shocking, scandalous discovery. People were excommunicated, they lost their jobs, they were exiled. That was scandalous for a while, but does does it really affect you today that the solar system moves the way it moves? Do you think about it when you get up in the morning? I don't. Is it that the resurrection has lost its surprise in our daily lives? It is interesting that in the Orthodox Church, when they get to Easter weekend, on Easter Monday, so this would be the day after the resurrection, they gather together and they exchange jokes with one another. You tell a joke, I tell a joke. You tell a joke, I tell a joke. Not just so we can all laugh together, but because a joke usually has what at the end? A twist, a surprise ending. Could you imagine going to church on this Monday after Easter and exchanging jokes together? You, you, you like that idea, huh? Nurturing the surprise of the resurrection, anticipating how it might turn out, and then you surprise me with another ending. I'm wondering if that's something we could be missing and something we should pay attention to. Resurrection faith is supposed to surprise us. Every day, God does God surprise you every day of life? Maybe He does, and my challenge is that I just have forgotten. Maybe I've forgotten to identify it and label it. That every day that I'm alive, God has surprised me with something. Do do you have a wonderful relationship in your life? That's a surprise from God. Do you enjoy laughter and good music and food and colors and movement and nature and artwork? Do you enjoy intelligent, critical thinking and conversation and novels and, and people and relationships? Isn't that the surprise of God? Isn't every day that in your life, in my life? Maybe I've just forgotten to name it. Maybe resurrection faith does surprise me every day, and I've simply forgotten to say it and name it and label it. What about the fact that you breathe today? Is that a surprise from God? Every person who's taking a breath today, that is resurrection faith inside of you. Do you believe that? Even for Jack Wetmore, as I watched him this morning with his oxygen tank coming behind him, which helps him breathe, that's res- resurrection living. He can still breathe. That means God still wants him alive today. It's the same for me. Same for you. It's why my prayers regularly now begin with, thank you, God, for this day of life. I don't want to take it for advantage. Resurrection faith. Maybe, maybe we, God is surprising us every day, and I'm just not remembering to name it. Resurrection faith is supposed to be a surprise every day when you wake up. It's supposed to throw your mind out of its normal condition. You're supposed to be bewildered. That's what God does. Resurrection faith is also intended to be lived in community. You notice here how he says, go tell the disciples. And Peter, he doesn't say, go back to your Own homes, go live in peace, go tell the guys, get the crew together, find all the rest of the women, and live it out together. If you're not in a resurrection faith community, I'm going to suggest this morning, you're not experiencing resurrection faith yet. This was never intended to be lived on its own, and if you're visiting today and you're looking for a community, we invite you to consider this one. Resurrection faith needs other people. I was reminded of this over the weekend now, Passion Week and Holy Week and Good Friday as we worshipped our family Thursday night in the Episcopalian Church in Redlands, Thursday night, Monday, Thursday service. I'm looking around the, this very beautiful old church with wooden pews and the icons and candles and incense and I'm worshipping with people I've never met before but they're in my community of faith, aren't they? They're resurrection faith people. And yesterday, a few of you were at the Yukaipa Adventist Church where all the churches in the Ukaipa Valley joined together for one ecumenical service, Good Friday service. I looked around the room at a few hundred people and thought, these people believe the same thing I believe. This is a resurrection faith community. I need them. Look at the picture in the front of the New York Times this morning as you see these Christian pilgrims carrying a humongous wooden cross in Jerusalem straight into the Holy Sepulchre. I don't know those people, but they're in my community and they're in your resurrection faith community also. This was always intended to be lived out together, never alone. Look at the powerful testimony in your scriptures and down through the centuries of all the people who live in resurrection faith, and we do it together. It's, it's what one author calls public evidence for a mystery. That many people believe in the same thing. Finally, I'd like to suggest to you that resurrection faith is never based on fear. Do you relate at all to the little fear and trembling lines in the passage? The women flee because they're afraid. They, they tremble. They're bewildered. They're not sure what to do. Are you ever motivated by fear? Maybe in your own personal life, maybe here in the church, maybe in church communities. I'm always intrigued when Christians across the country and the nation sort of put their voices behind something. Sometimes it's out of fear. They speak out against things. If you've been watching the Gospel of Judas the last week or two, the conversations about this in particular, they're fascinating because we, I believe, sometimes get motivated out of fear instead of out of a healthier place in our community, and we begin to discredit the find, and we dismantle the scholarship that contributed, and instead of being curious, we disapprove of what we find. What is it do we think in these papyri? That's something bigger than the God that's in our Bible? Why do we worry that we're going to find something? There are thousands of manuscripts in the ground and in caves we don't even know anything about yet. What is so troubling about that, I ask myself? If it has the name Jesus in it, I'd like to read it. I'd like to know what it has to say. Maybe a more important or significant question could be, what can we learn from these new things that tell us more about early Christian faith? rather than fear of trying to have to protect what we already have in our hands. Sometimes we're motivated by fear as a church. Sometimes we're motivated by fear personally. If you've ever feared God in your relationship with him, I hope you'll listen carefully this morning, because in this resurrection story, Listen how quickly fear, and by this I mean people who think they've disappointed God, they're not worthy of what God has to offer, they would think they might be outside of the circle of care that God has drawn, they, possibly, they can't possibly be good enough for what God has in mind for resurrected faith people. In fact, you might be so uncomfortable with it that it keeps you out of church, and it keeps you away from Christians because you don't think you're that. You don't have it all together. Look at how quickly That gets dispelled, would you? In the one phrase, go tell the disciples and who? Peter, the great disappointer. Go tell disciples and Peter what's happening. No matter how much we disappoint God, and we do, it is never enough for this resurrection faith to be minimized. We'll never be outside of it. There isn't any fear in this story, and I'd like to just suggest to you Fear always has its context inside of the faith and the hope and the love of God. It's okay to be a little bit afraid. The disciples were afraid in the Bible, aren't they? But it's always in the context of a good God, a faithful God, a gracious God. There is not fear in this resurrection story, but it does demand a response from us. I think that's one of the reasons Mark just sort of drops it off at the end like that. Everybody freezes. Everybody's in freeze frame, paralyzed. And and it gives us a chance to say, well, now wait, what would I do? And he says, well, Jesus has gone ahead up to Galilee. Go catch up with him. Well, what would I do if I was there? Would I be paralyzed too? Is there a way for me to have any other kind of ending to this story? Is there a way for me to back up and let God amaze me? once again. It's been years ago. I decided to do something nice for my husband. I said that for service. I've done nice things in between. <laughs> I promise. And I decided to clean his car on a Friday afternoon after a very busy week. Children were sleeping, their little tiny ones, and he was, you know, busy in school and work and all of that. And so I decided to empty the car of trash, vacuum it, take the armor all, and do, I don't do a very good job on those things, but I did it. Cleaning the trunk out, I found all these papers that needed to be removed. Most of them were trash. I picked up this little tiny one that looked like a receipt. It was a receipt from the ARCO AMPM, Minimart, where I saw he bought a couple things, you know, a Diet Pepsi, and I looked at this receipt to make sure I could throw it away, and I saw he bought a Bud Light. I didn't
1: laugh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Priceless. A Bud Light. I'm married to somebody who drinks alcohol. I didn't know. Known him since I was 19. As far as I know, he doesn't drink alcohol. I'm married to an alcoholic, I decided in the middle of the driveway. So I'm behind the trunk of the car and I begin to pace back and forth, he's an alcoholic, I had no idea he drinks, he's a closet drinker, he probably drinks when I go to bed, and here's the, he probably drinks parked up the street, you know, in his car, I'm married to an alcoholic, my children have an alcoholic for a father. (laughs) And my mind just went and went and I was so far ahead, okay, what do you do now, I know know you're supposed to, I, I call my parents, I'll move back in, I'll take the girls, we'll move home, I'm gonna call mom and say he's an alcoholic and they're gonna say, we told you so. Okay, I'm not going to call my parents. What am I going to do? They make shelters for situations like this. That's where you go. You take your children and you move into a shelter. Okay, I can do this. We'll just, we're poor already. It won't matter. We're just going to live in a shelter, the girls and me, and we'll figure it out. They can't have an alcoholic for a father. I know that's bad. And I'm in the driveway wasting all this energy thinking, what in the world am I going to do? And he's in there asleep and the children are they safe. They're in the same house. I'm going to confront him. I decided, no, this is smarter. I'll confront him. I'll just say, I found this in the car. I know you have a little problem. Let's talk about it. We'll take care of it. So I get myself all together, and I go in the house, and I'm down the hallway to the bedroom door, where I look again to see that my husband indeed stopped at the A.M.P.M. market, and he bought one bug light. <laughs> It's a bug light, the yellow glowing things that keep the moths away at night. He bought a bug light. That's legal. You know, he didn't deserve all of that worry. He didn't deserve all of that box that I put him in. He hasn't done anything to make me think he would disappoint us that way. Why did I jump to that conclusion? Why had I decided this is what had happened, and and I had it all figured out, and sometimes we do this with God. We come to the end of the story, and we have it all figured out, and it's going to be this way, and either I'm in or out, and I might not be able to work out my salvation, and who knows if it's going to, but I know this is how God is, and I better get, uh, and we forget that God is in charge of this story. We forget that God is the one who said, Go tell the disciples and Peter, Peter, I still know your name. You're still in this story. We forget that when mercy and grace comes after us, it was never because we planned it. God is a God of surprises. And the resurrection story just begs you to say, what are you going to do with this? You have a God in front of your face who refuses to let the dead remain dead. You have a God in front of your face who wants to be alive. You have a God who in the cross and the resurrection says to the whole world, I refuse to let evil masquerade as the supreme power of this earth. That is not the case You have a Jesus who hangs on the cross and is willing to say, this is my father's world, these are my father's children, get behind them, Satan, I will die, they will live. That's the way it is in God's kingdom. And the resurrection story is just laying open for you here at the end of Mark, begging to know, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to let God surprise you? Are you going to just take a step back and forget about planning the ending and figuring it all out, but walk out of here today? Today, I'm going to let God surprise me, because that's what resurrection faith does. Today, I'm going to step into the story and take a chance. That's what resurrection faith does. Today, I'm going to let God be God. What do you say to the resurrection story? It begs for you to respond. Are you willing?
1: Out of every nation, Hath redeemed us by His blood. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed. child and foe. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. Join us, Redeemer. Thou on earth, our food, our stay. sing Redeemed once more. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood,
0: Of God can say amen. amen. If I say he is risen, will you return the greeting? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. So because that's the case, go now in the light of the risen Lord with the surprising grace of God of the resurrection. That's my prayer. Amen.